Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, beautiful souls, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible best-selling author and therapist, Catherine Woodward Thomas. Hello, Catherine. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you. Our topic for today is on conscious uncoupling. And for those that don't know, Catherine Woodward Thomas is the New York Times bestselling author of Conscious Uncoupling, Five Steps to Living Happily Even After, as well as the author of Calling in the One, Seven Weeks to Attract the Love of Your Life. She is an award-winning licensed marriage and family psychotherapist who has taught thousands of people from all corners of the globe to create conscious, loving relationships. She also trains and certifies Calling in the One coaches and Conscious Uncoupling coaches and provides ongoing supervision and development to a vibrant community of coaches from around the world. How are you today, Catherine? I'm really well, Zach, and I'm just really, really happy to be here with you talking about how we can learn to love. I'm so happy that you're on too. And yes, I just have a list of questions and I'd love to just get right into it. And I know our topic for today is on conscious uncoupling, but I wouldn't mind starting a little bit closer towards the beginning, the coupling part of it. Your first book is on calling in the one. And what are some of those obstacles? What are some of the things that get in the way from people finding healthy love? I love that question. You know, because when they keep coming up as recurring patterns or, you know, the frustration of not being able to create the kind of relationship you desire, somehow they're always married or they're always living in some city that's thousands of miles away or there's always some kind of impossible situation, a triangular kind of thing. So when they happen, it really feels like it's happening to us against our will. And calling in the one is really all about the inquiry into the deeper levels of how is it happening through us. And those are really questions that are about how are we getting in our own way unknowingly. So usually if people are on the quest for love, they actually really want love. And they want it sometimes in a way that's, that, that is kind of compelling and it feels like a, a loneliness or a complaint about men or about women or about dating culture. But some of the inner obstacles that I help people to become really conscious of are the ways that we're inconsistent with the future of love fulfilled. The ways that we are still showing up kind of anchored in past times where we're incomplete with the past in some way that would have a part of us not trust love. So for example, one of the biggest obstacles that I tell people to look at is uh, at the resentments that they might have towards any former partners. Now, usually, you know, when you have a resentment towards someone, it's usually because they behaved badly. So they're understandable, but the tendency that we all have is to really point the finger at others 
and get very focused on what they did or they didn't do that they should have done and what they did that they shouldn't have done. And I like to say, even if it was 97% the other person's fault, you really want to be curious about your 3% because that's usually covert in nature. And that is obvious until we actually really turn our attention there fully. And we ask ourselves, how am I responsible for that breakdown? And that's going to be that I turned away from my deeper knowing or I minimized the red flags or I somehow never really fully expressed my feelings. I never negotiated my needs. I got into a situation looking at someone's potential rather than the information they were actually giving me. So all sorts of ways that are more covert that really get in our way of being able to trust ourselves moving forward. So until we see that 3%, we can't really feel confident that we're not going to just create another disappointing situation. So very often, if you've had your heart broken in the past, you don't want your heart broken again. So you put up all sorts of walls, all sorts of deflections, all sorts of kind of built-in exit strategies like, oh, by the way, someone has a wife or, oh, by the way, they're moving to France next month. So so we really want to look at that 3% so you can decide how you're going to do things differently moving forward. And that plugs up that hole and helps to restore a sense of confidence in your ability to navigate love in a way that's healthy and could lead to fulfillment. Another inner obstacle is what I call the the old agreements that we might have made. These are promises that we made to ourselves in a moment of passion, like I'm never going to get hurt like that again. I'm never going to open my heart up, or maybe you made a promise to someone that I'll never love anyone like I love you, or it might be something that you decided when you were 12, when you saw your mother and father fighting yet again, and you thought, gosh, I'm just never going to get married. This is not for me. So these are what I'm calling old agreements, and what they actually are are intentions that we set that will begin to shape how our lives develop from that moment forward. So we want to go back and become curious about it and conscious. Some of them were never even spoken aloud, like you might have kind of an unspoken loyalty to your older sister who is still not married inside of some fear that you might hurt her if you get married before her. So you're just going to make sure that that doesn't happen. So we have to make these conscious and we have to then consciously evolve these agreements to be congruent with the future that we're committed to creating. Another one is kind of a toxic dynamic that's still going on in our lives. We might have an unhealthy dynamic with our with a, a sibling or a parent or a boss or an old friend where we're kind of showing up as a lesser version of ourselves and we're giving away our power to try and keep the peace. You know, these are very complicated things. Like you might have a sister who's an alcoholic, or you might have a boss who's a narcissist. Like there's a reason that we do this, but it's very difficult to say you're going to have a great relationship, like the highest and the best that a relationship can be. While on the other hand, you keep showing up as a lesser version of yourself, not setting boundaries, not telling the truth and feeling kind of used by the relationship in some way. So we want to get all of our relationships clean and clear so that we're showing up as the strongest, healthiest version of ourselves because that's the self that we want to be sourced from when we go into finding our partner. The, the biggest obstacle 
which has to do with what I call your core love identity. And that's the sense of self that was formed very young in relationship to your early caregivers. And, you know, a lot of us are kind of hip to old traumas and relational traumas. We were neglected or we were abandoned or we were abused in some way. Um, Maybe something happened like an acute trauma. Maybe it was a developmental trauma where you were kind of abused by your narcissistic mother over a period of years. So all these things were, we kind of connected the dots between the old trauma and then patterns that are duplicating, but we don't always have access to shifting those patterns and evolving beyond them. So in calling in the one, what we do is this very elegant system where what we're looking for is that identity that was formed when you were young in relationship to the people that you depended upon. And we start to look at First of all, what's really true about that? You know, if you formed a a self-sense of I'm alone or I'm not safe or I'm not wanted, what's really true about that? We go back and we help to really connect you to your value and your power so that you can begin to date and then show up certainly in the early stages of relationship and even throughout the relationship from your adult self that knows that you do indeed have access to power in this relationship. You have the power to keep it safe. And on course, you have the power to get your needs met. You have you have worth here. You're deserving of getting your needs met. So in, in this part of Calling in the One, we really help people to get anchored into the healthiest sense of themselves and really know how to navigate relationship from that center so that people can trust themselves going into love, that whatever disappointing patterns have been happening in the past are complete and are done and they have the ability to create something new on the other side. Wow. That's why it's a 49-day course. (laughs) We did that in like like four minutes, but it's a 49-day course. And you do a little bit at a time, right? So it's all laid out. You can do a little bit. And then, of course, there's the manifesting part. How do you actually... So a lot of us have gotten rid of what we know we don't want more of, but what we don't know how to do is how to actually create what we do want. So then that's the second half of the calling in the one process where you get into how to manifest and create the relationship you really desire. That's what I was curious about because it really sounds like that really first step of finding the one is somewhat counterintuitive. It's not going out necessarily to the bar or somewhere to find the person, but it actually involves that deep internal work. And if I summarize the overarching theme of what I'm hearing is it's a matter of recognizing, becoming aware of both the conscious and unconscious patterning that keeps repeating that's preventing the one from coming into our life. Well, and let me just say one piece of it, because I think we know that from psychotherapy that you want to go back and heal your old traumas, but you know, it can seem like an endless process. And I think that healing is a different domain than transformation. We're talking about transforming your love life. It's a different domain than healing all your past wounds. You do not have to heal every wound in order to transform your love life and have love now. And I think it's really important for people to know that. So healing might go on for the rest of your life, but you want to start actually with the future and not your past. And you want to have the courage to say, you know, by the end of this year or by my birthday, I will be in 
a healthy relationship where I feel loved, safe, seen, heard, supported, where I'm lit up when that person walks through the room or we're compatible and we are on the way to building a life together. You actually have to start with the future and then you need to ask yourself, who am I in that future? What would I need to let go of? How will I need to grow to become who I would need to be in order to fulfill that future, not just manifest it, but then sustain it? And what's my next step? So it's a very active developmental process of becoming the version of yourself that you would need to be in order for that future to manifest. So just to summarize a few of the obstacles that I heard from you, one of which is resentment they might have towards former partners, which I totally agree. I think that's a huge kind of red flag if someone talks really ill about almost all of their previous relationships. Also, the old agreements we've made showing up as a lesser version of ourself and our core life identity. And I want to follow up on that core life identity piece because you gave us some examples of sort of those identities that don't serve us, the feeling that I'm alone, the feeling that I'm not safe. And what are some more empowering identities? So how do we shift to a core life identity that does really serve us? Oh, that's beautiful. I actually love that you're calling it a core life identity. I call it a core love identity. Oh, love. But I, oh, think, but I think it's everywhere. Like you could say, what's my core financial identity? Or what's my core identity around contributing my gifts to the world? Because we have different self-senses in different areas sometimes. You know, and the most common one, of course, is I'm not enough, right? So a core sense of self that you want to get to is I am deeply worthy of love and respect. I am worthy of being chosen just as I am. I'm a process who's committed to growth and development, yet I am worthy of being chosen and loved just for who I am today. So it's it's actually just pushing back, but you have to create a power statement that deconstructs your own false love identity. And each of us have a different love identity. I say that there's about 21 most common, and some of us have variations on a theme, but they're pretty predictable in terms of how we show up inside of that consciousness in a way that actually generates evidence for that. So for example, if you're a person who has an I'm alone love identity, very often you will become self-sufficient to the extreme. So much so that it's really hard for others to kind of find their way in. They have the experience that you don't actually ever need them for anything, right? So, so we're kind of, each one of our identities has ways of relating that are very specific to that particular consciousness. And until we wake ourselves up, and, and we do that by saying, you know, where is that I'm alone story in my body? How old is that part of me? And what do I want to tell that part of me? And I might start with, sweetheart, you're not alone. I'm right here. I've got you. I love you. And then we might come up with a power statement like, look, the truth is, is that I have the, I didn't come here to be alone. I came here to love and be loved. And I have the power to learn how to have great relationships. That's why I'm with Jack Beach as often as I can be, because I am learning how to love and I can, and it is my destiny to have love in this life. So you can really claim that and, and begin to source how you're showing up in life from that center. Oh, so many nuggets of wonderful wisdom. I want to repeat something you said before, because I really loved it, that we don't have to heal every wound to transform our life. 
and then mirroring what you're talking about now is that we can create a power statement that deconstructs our own false love identity. And one example of that power statement is, it is my destiny to have love in this lifetime. (laughs) Ah, so powerful. We're going to show up differently from that center than from the I'm alone center, right? So an example if you're in, if you're centered and I'm alone, and and someone who matters disappoints you, what you do is you kind of step back and you put self protection above relationship enhancement in that moment because you go see no one will ever be there for me or everyone always leaves and I'm just destined to be alone and you kind of go eat ice cream you know in front of in front and watch Netflix or something <laughs> right <laughs> but if you but if you're centered and wait a minute. It's my destiny to love and be loved. And I'm on a learning curve. And this is good. The disappointment just showed up. And I get to pick up the phone and say to that person, look, you matter to me and my feelings are hurt. And I feel, you know, kind of bad about it. But I want to see if we could work it through. And then you might have the experience that love grows because you took that action. So we literally are generating our lives from the consciousness that we're centered in. And we have to become self-aware and in where we're centered when we're navigating our relationships. We are generating our lives from the consciousness that we are centered in. Wow. So let's say I've done this work. I worked on myself to transform. I've had an empowering statement of love and I've started a relationship with somebody. And I don't want to have to get a book on conscious uncoupling. <laughs> I want the relationship to last, right? What are some ways to do that? What are some ways to ensure that new relationship? You know, I have to tell you, nobody wants to be in that club. And I have so much compassion on people going through that disappointment because there really is no other disappointment like it. And whether you were together for six weeks, six years, 60 years, uh, I've kind of worked with people at all levels, sometimes even six days, you had a wild love affair, you thought it was going to last. And then the shock of losing that connection or that possible future can be quite shattering. Judith Herman, who is from Harvard Medical School, is one of considered to be kind of the mother of, of trauma recovery calls a breakup a rupture of attachment and she says it's one of the biggest traumas we will ever have to go through so you know our friends are usually there for us for a while and they'll be patient but maybe after a few weeks they're like all right get over it already he's not worth it she's not worth it you're spending too much time there the best way to get over someone is to get under someone else it's like you know all sorts of you know okay move on messages but sometimes it's not that easy And we get stuck in the birth canal. We actually get stuck in grief very easily. So conscious uncoupling can't actually, you know, just disappear the pain that you might be in from losing love, but it will help to turn that trauma into post-traumatic growth so that you can learn how to love more deeply, how to be healthier. You can actually use that experience as kind of your wake-up call to a whole new level of your ability to recognize your worthiness, to get your needs met, to navigate relationships to their highest potential. So in other words, 
breakups can either kind of make us or break us is what it is. And and there and there's no middle ground because you're in so much pain. It's almost like life has you, you know, upside down and is shaking you by the feet, you know, every everything that you've had in your pockets, all your codependence, all your self-loathing, all of your bad habits, all of your love avoidance stuff. It's kind of like all out in the open. There's really nowhere else to go because you're in pain. So it's it can actually though be really the best thing that ever happened to you in terms of fast tracking you beyond ways of relating that are maybe what we call pseudo strategies like people pleasing, disappearing yourself and making someone else more important than you to, in order to prove your worth. Or if you're kind of self-absorbed, it lets you know the consequences of that, and that you really do need to grow your ability to hear other people more deeply. So they really are life's way of fast tracking our growth and development. And if you are a person who is asking the universe, teach me how to love, you know, you, you might really be initiating these difficult periods and you have to find a way to get all of the, you know, all of the juice from that pineapple. You want to really, you know, get everything you can out of that experience so you never have to go through this again. I see breakups almost as a crossroads because a lot of people it, it get stuck in the birth canal in what we call prolonged grief or complicated grief. Because they come to conclusions that would have them close up to love moving forward very easily. Like, well, I'm not a person who's good at relationships, so therefore I won't really have them. Or all men will cheat or all you know, women cheat on their person. I mean, it's we just come to really toxic conclusions because we're trying to get resolution and we're trying to find a way to be safe again so that we can kind of have live in a predictable universe that's somewhat, you know, under our control. Because that's what needs to happen when we feel traumatized. We need to get control back of our lives. So so I see that many people go on to live what I call lesser lives in the aftermath of a breakup, where they close down, they shut down, they become more defended. But you know, the opposite is also true. If you, if you really allow yourself to kind of move through what I've created, the five steps of conscious uncoupling, there are developmental tasks that we can accomplish to really point that pain in the right direction so that we really can use it to graduate from who we've known ourselves to be to who we are potentially becoming. So there's a lot that there's there, the, the three steps of conscious uncoupling, the first three steps are all inner development. The last two are about how to deal with that person, particularly if you have kids, you have to keep dealing or if you work together, right? You have to continue to deal with that. And then sometimes people want to be friends with their partner. So how do we do that really consciously and mindfully? I mean, one major thing I'm hearing from you is just how hard a breakup can be. You mentioned how it's one of the biggest traumas we will have to experience sometimes and that there is a lot of pain. And... Does it have to be that way? Is it always going to be the case? Are there ways to lessen the burden of the painful breakup? Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, there are two different questions. Is Does it always have to be that way? And are there ways to lessen the burden? So I think that there's degrees of it. I've seen people go through a breakup where they do it in a way that's very contained. They don't start dating other people. They listen to each other. They process they support each other, they bless each other, they might do a ritual together, 
they tell their friends that we're not going to, you know, blame anybody. This We're just outgrowing the relationship. It's not really right to stay together. So that's really beautiful. I grew up in a time where, you know, people didn't really have those skills or something. I don't know. A lot of us, you know, like my generation, even our parents just had really nasty, ugly, ugly going to war kind of breakup. So I think that's lessening in general. You know, certainly if you have kids, everybody wants to have an amicable breakup, but there are things that are happening in the brain and in the body that would work against that. And also in our legal system, if you're getting divorced and there are assets or children, the legal system is prone to go to war. The brain and the body is prone to go to war too. There's a way that we're kind of hardwired for connection so that when a connection is ending, the brain will do all sorts of things to keep us bonded with that person. So it might do things like there's uh, actually this phenomenon when someone rejects you, that instead of the normal thing that would be kind of logical is to just kind of lessen your investment in that connection. What the brain does is it's, it signals the body to release the same exact hormones that you had when you were first falling in love. So in other words, the brain wants you to run after that person to get them back and not let them go. Or the body is kind of programmed to go into fight, flight, or freeze, which is the high trauma state that we're apt to go to war. And when we go to war or we start to ruminate and hate that person, we go from soulmate to soul hate, which is the brain's Mm. way of going from a positive bond to a negative bond because hate's very involved and active. It's not a neutral uh, experience. It's not the opposite of love. It's just kind of the shadow side of love. So that's what we're up against. But that said, most people will go through the five stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross identified in her book on death and dying. However, in a breakup, it's a little more complicated, particularly if you were left by someone Because if someone leaves you, you know, they probably have a story about you or you're going to interpret it from your old love identity. See, I'm not safe to open my heart or see, I am destined to be all alone or see, I must not be enough. So we kind of take it as evidence and then we get stuck in that story because identity is actually relational. And if you have a relationship with someone who has been your person and you've had deep intimacy and suddenly the person who wanted you more than anyone is now saying that they don't want you anymore, that can lodge as an old identity. It can actually kind of rip the scab off that old wound. So the danger of a breakup is getting stuck in that old story. And that's, I think, what creates or contributes to what we call complicated grief or prolonged grief, where you don't actually get over it, where two years later, you're driving down the freeway and you're telling that person off in your mind. There's different ways that unresolved grief can show up for months, years, even decades and keep people pretty focused on the relationship in a way that's really harmful to their health and their ability to even have future love and future happiness and love. So that's what conscious uncoupling does. It kind of makes sure that you really become you you get everything that you need to get from this breakup and you come out the other side with a heart that is light where you forgive yourself, you have forgiven, you're not holding resentments, the field is clean. You've got 
you know, everybody's set up to win. You don't, you haven't created bad karma because you've, you know, done something to undermine someone else's ability to move on. You know, a lot of it's about keeping our karma clean so that, so that we, we're really free to move forward in a way that's abundant, free, clean and clear. So many little gems of wisdom there. Thank you. And I do feel that there is that shift from soulmate to soul hate. Such a strong statement there, but it's true. Sometimes the person that brought us so much joy in our life ends up being bringing so much pain. And I am hearing a lot about those struggles of the breakup. And I am just curious overall, your perspective on relationships and breakup and if breakups are a bad thing and should be seen as a bad thing. And even if something like divorce should be seen as a failure of the relationship. So what I mean by that is a lot of people today cite the fact that 50% of marriages fail and how bad this is, right? It means the sacred institution is no longer as important as it once was. We lack the love education and therefore have to really try our best to reduce that statistic. But on the other hand, what I'm hearing from you is all, first of all, a breakup does force a personal transformation and a healing and growth. But also simply that, I think a lot of people recognize we're going to have many ones throughout our life for a lot of us. And something like 50% of marriages failing is actually almost a consequence of giving people freedom to end a relationship that didn't serve them while before they had to stay in a toxic marriage because they didn't have the, say, legal capabilities of stepping outside of it. So should we see the end of a relationship as a failure of our cultural and religious institutions? You know, we, we all kind of hold ourselves and each other accountable to the happily ever after myth. And we do assume that if a relationship ends before someone dies, that that relationship was a form of failure. And um, at the end of my own 10-year marriage, you know, I, I, I automatically kind of went to that perspective. And inside of that perspective, I started to feel really bad about myself. And I felt uh, what we call as breakup shame and probably made more acute because I had written Calling in the One and I had students around, you know, and I'm committed like you are, Zach, to evolving our capacity to love and be loved. So it was kind of horrifying. But I also had worked with enough people that I knew this wasn't a personal experience, that this is what so many of us feel at the end of a relationship. So I get a little rebellious against these assumptions, these kind of cultural assumptions that are just out there like that's you know, that's the standard. And so I asked myself, wait a minute, whose standard am I holding myself accountable to right now? Because if it was just my standard, Mark and I made a very, you know, thoughtful decision. We were honest with each other. We're trying to do this really fairly and really beautifully. I don't necessarily believe that people should just stay married for the sake of the kids, because I know that statistically, uh, if you're in an unhappy marriage, that can really impact children in negative ways. So, you know, it didn't, it wasn't my standard. So I started to research the happy ever after myth. And what I've discovered is that it's only about 400 years old, which is really not very, very old in the terms of, you know, human development. And that it was created initially as a form of literary entertainment 
really in post-Renaissance times in Venice, Italy is where it was first created, which I think is a hoot because Venice is still kind of the romance capital of the world. But at the time, the life conditions were really, really different than they are today. First of all, half the children died before their 16th birthday. The life expectancy was only less than 40 years of age. People had no choice, just like you're pointing to, they had no choice really, of a lifestyle that was different than the one that they were born into. And as a matter of fact, you know, all the happily, they lived happily ever after all of those myths and would, you know, upward mobility. The whole community is uplifted because a noble person marries a commoner, a prince marries a commoner. And so everybody's standard of living gets raised. But back then, when the happy ever after myth came into vogue, there was a law on the books that forbid noble people to marry commoners. So it, it really came in as, a, as an escapist fantasy, you know, and it helped people to just tolerate their difficult circumstances. So obviously today we have really different circumstances. So our lifespan, even though it's gone down a bit with uh, COVID, but our lifespan is pretty much double what it was then. We do have mobility. We do have a lot of choices. We don't need each other economically to stay married. Uh, most of us can figure that one out. And, you know, statistically, we're more, uh, we're more prone towards serial monogamy. So statistically, I think most of us are slated to have two or three really significant relationships in our lifetime, which assumes a breakup or two. That's a really big one. And conscious uncoupling isn't advocating breakup. I'm actually, as a person, pro-marriage, but I'm not pro-misery. And I wanted... (laughs) (laughs) But inside of kind of our assumption that this is a failure, we never actually learn how to do this well. And, you know, we, we do have these big feelings at the end of love. We do think we're going to die. We do get tempted to behave uncharacteristically badly at the end of love. You know, in a trauma, when we're traumatized by someone leaving us in particular, we we will feel like it's the end of our lives. We're going to feel like, you know, everything's falling apart. We are high threat, highly threatened. We are, we do have a tendency to go to war because what's happening in the brain is the thinking part of the brain slows down and the action part of the brain speeds up. So that's when we do really stupid things like key his car or throw all his suits out on the front lawn and pour bleach on them. Or we just even say things that are really hurtful to the other person, you know, because hurt people tend to hurt people. So how do we do this well? And how do we grow ourselves? You know, a thousand years ago, if you wandered away from your tribe, you probably would die. So that reactive state is really kind of a leftover from that time. We haven't quite caught up with ourselves. So conscious uncoupling, you know, contrary to how Gwyneth kind of shaped it, because Gwyneth made it seem like it's just a form of amicable divorce that two people do well. I really created it for the person whose heart is broken, who feels really shattered, who feels kind of, you know, overwhelmed by the complexity of all of their feelings, by the impulse to even want to hurt somebody or retaliate or to be furious with themselves and can't quite get over it or resolve that. So it's about how we can move through the process of a breakup in a way that's healthy and sane and is in alignment with our ethics as opposed to these overwhelming big emotions. I love that. You're pro-marriage, but not pro-misery. And as we're winding down, I do want to get into this five-step process that you have described, and we don't have time to go through all of them. 
Let's just start with the first one. First step to living happily even after, after we've let go of the fairy tale of happily ever after. Recognizing we might have two, three, four, five significant relationships in our life. Five ones, perhaps. (laughs) So the first one being finding your emotional freedom. So why is that the first step and what does it look like? It's the first step because usually in a breakup, we have anything, everything but emotional freedom. We are captives to the hurting, the hurt in our heart, or the rage in our bellies, or the the kind of inability to, to make sense of it all. So walking around with a tremendous amount of fear. You know, most people who listen to you, Zach, I know that they're pretty deep and spiritual. And what happens even initially in a breakup sometimes is what we call a schema fracture. And a schema fracture is when your whole way of making sense of the beauty of life is kind of inside out and upside down. So at a time where you might need your spiritual practice even more, that's the time that you're like pushing it away because sometimes you feel betrayed by life and you don't trust life anymore. So we're kind of in this really, you know, terrible state and finding emotional freedom gives us tools to actually begin to hold and contain our own inner experience with love and from the part of us that can just hold ourselves through really a difficult time. And then it teaches us also how to sponsor some of the negative feelings and turn them into fuel for positive change. And what I mean by that is like, let's say you have the feeling of rage. And rage, you know, if you look for what's underneath rage that's right about rage, is the reclamation of your right to be treated with fairness, to be loved to be respected and you can take that you know underlying kind of impulse and validate that if you feel rage it's because you've been violated in some way so then you say okay you know i'm gonna make an intention for myself that this is the last time this will ever happen to me this is part of a larger pattern this is the end of it and so i am claiming for myself that from now on i have relationships that are mutual that are healthy that are respectful with people who care about what I need and respond to those needs with integrity and care. And I can give that back to them, but that's how it's going to be from now on. So you're setting an intention. You're turning the negative into the positive for yourself. I love that. And this has been a huge theme that I've been thinking about lately is how we can use the proverbial shit in our life as fertilizer for our growth. And it all comes back to love, that when we can contain the inner experience with love, as you mentioned, we can use those negative feelings and turn them into fuel for more positive change. I love how you worded that. I think you do that with people in your classes and stuff too, right? We do. Yeah. How to hold, how to hold ourselves with love and compassion. Even though we made mistakes and did it again and didn't see it coming or whatever it is to just, you got to start with self-love as the foundation. Absolutely. So it's so interesting because the third step of conscious uncoupling is to break the pattern and heal one's heart. And it's so interesting because now that I've learned a little bit about calling in the one, it seems very similar. <laughs> yeah. The third step in both of them is about that. Your love identity. Exactly. You're putting it all together now. So tell us more about this third step. Okay, great. Well, so first of all, in conscious uncoupling, I call it your source fracture story, the original break in your heart. 
Right. So we kind of throw our stories around sometimes. You know, my mother was narcissistic or my dad was a rageaholic. And really what that means is that that I might have formed a self-sense that I'm not worth paying any attention to. I'm kind of invisible. The needs of others matter more than mine. So it might live as an I'm invisible. And and uh, my tendency inside of that will be to, all, to put all my attention elsewhere on the other person. Or inside of an I'm not safe that might have formed in response to an angry father. I'm, I might always feel like other people are going to hurt me. So I have a tendency to be very defensive in relationships. So we understand these as kind of psychological issues. But what happens in the third step, break the pattern and heal your heart, is that the opportunity of a breakup is to finally come to completion with that story, such that you could really graduate from it. You don't even see any residue of it moving forward. So it's it's being able to, again, identify the younger self in your body, that tender part of you that so easily drops down into an old identity in response to a disappointment or in response to being hurt by another person. And learning how to mentor that part of you to wake yourself up. So that might look like being able to soothe yourself and say, sweetheart, you are you are so lovable even when the one you love is not loving you. Or you are worthy of respect even when someone else is being disrespectful to you. Right? So that we have to get ourselves because where prolonged grief comes in is really when we kind of settle into that sense of self and we and we stop there. So part of step three, though, is to notice how that story showed up at various times in the relationship and caused you to show up in ways that then even maybe even baited the other person to behave in particular ways that validated that story. Or maybe you chose that person because you were so centered in that story, the I'm not good enough that had me choose somebody who was overly entitled. So I was always trying to do more, do more, do more, do more to show my, to prove my value to somebody who couldn't see me anyway. So it's really being able to see that because again, you're kind of inside out and upside down. You have to see it clearly and to be able to, to really take a stand for yourself and the truth of who you are and start to map out how am I going to show up from this truth moving forward from here. And then the final piece of that that I think is really beautiful is, you know, we all know that just because you break up and you give the keys to the condo back doesn't mean that you're not connected to that person anymore. You know, relationships are not the physical location. And when you've really bonded deeply with someone, there's a way we can talk to each other internally through time and space. There's a non-local connection. And quantum physics really proves this phenomenon as well. So we all have our stories, you know, when you think of someone and then all of a sudden they call out of the blue, that kind of thing. So we're all kind of connected to each other. And part of the traumas of a breakup is that very often you might be breaking up with someone who has a story about you. And they're projecting that you're guilty, that you're bad, that you're worthless, that, you know, all of their judgments on you, which they might be doing a soulmate to soul hate just to try and take a shortcut to exit. You know, that's kind of a, what people do. So when you're, when you're left, you're feeling that inside of you and that can become internalized. So what we want to do is do what we call a soul to soul meditation that when you do discover the truth of who you are, and you can feel your own worthiness, your own value. You go into meditation 
and you invite the soul of that person to come before you and you imagine them and maybe you're all dressed, you know, formally or you have a beautiful setting or you have angels with you and you can facilitate a conversation where you might say something like, I know I showed up from a lesser version of myself that was really about an old wound, but it's not who I am. And who I am is a person who is worthy of respect. Who I am is a person who is worthy of love. Who I am is powerful. And you imagine seeing in your former partner's eyes recognition of the truth of who you are. Because the brain doesn't know the difference between what we're imagining and what actually happens. So you can begin to restore in the relational field a sense of yourself that is aligned with the truth. So that's step three, basically, in a nutshell. Wow. Wow. Catherine Woodward Thomas, you are incredible. I love your gentle presence. You have a way with words. It's clear you're a writer and you are just a fountain of wisdom and a wealth of knowledge. And I so appreciate you coming on. Unfortunately, we only got to two of the five steps to living happily, even after. So I encourage all our listeners to check out Conscious Uncoupling. Or if you're not in that phase, call in the one. (laughs) But I still do have to finish by asking you the final question I ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? That love is something that we create as opposed to look for. And that when love is missing, we have the power to generate it wherever we are. You know, that came from when I was in my 30s and I was going through this period, dark night of the soul didn't end, nothing was working, everything I tried to do for myself, my career was a mess, my love life was a mess, I was broke, I was so depressed and I made a decision, I thought, well, I refuse to live a loveless life, so if love isn't coming to me, I'm going to bring love to others. And I actually went down to Skid Row in Los Angeles and I created a music project that uplifted so many people who were down on Skid Row. We wrote songs about their lives and their recovery and ended up being this beautiful thing in the LA music community. I did it for five years. It completely changed my life and put me on a whole new trajectory. And I think it was the most important decision I ever made. What a commitment. If love isn't going to come to me, I'm going to bring love to others. Just the lightness and ease in your presence. I never would have imagined you've gone through such challenges in your life. So thank you so much for coming on. And I really want to respect your time. I usually end with a summary, but I'm just going to finish this call by thanking you again for coming on. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Thanks, everyone. That was Catherine Woodward Thomas, everyone. She had to go, so I wanted to send her off. At the end of our interview, I didn't get a chance to summarize the lessons that we learned during that interview and also let you know where you can find Catherine Woodward Thomas's work. So thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the valuable lessons that Catherine Woodward Thomas shared with us today, including some of those big obstacles to calling in the one, such as the resentment we have towards former partners, the agreements we've made, the ways that we show up as a lesser version of ourselves, and our core love identity. 
Good news. You don't have to heal every wound to transform your life. A powerful exercise is to create a power statement that deconstructs your own false love identity and create a more empowering statement such as you came here to love and be loved and it is your destiny to have love in this lifetime. On the path of conscious uncoupling, we can find emotional freedom by containing the inner experience of love and recognize that you are lovable, even when the one you love is not loving you, and that love is something that you create. If you want to learn more about Catherine Woodward Thomas, you can go to CatherineWoodwardThomas.com, ConsciousUncoupling.com, CallingInTheOne.com, and find her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Catherine Woodward Thomas. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for committing to this work, to becoming a more loving individual and bringing more love into the world. It's so needed, so necessary. We all need love, connection, and belonging. So thank you listeners for supporting this show, supporting me, supporting Catherine, supporting this work, and of course, supporting love. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.